Because if you want to actually do things, accomplish things, make a difference in the world, whatever you know, shape that takes, I have this mantra of mine, to keep it, you have to give it away. This is where I would normally plug a sponsor to pay the bills, but I'm not big on promoting stuff that I don't personally use and believe in. So instead, I'm just going to quickly tell you about something of mine. Specifically, my 100% natural fat loss supplement, Phoenix. It has sold over 100,000 bottles in the last several years, and it helps you lose fat faster in three ways. One, it increases your metabolic rate, Two, it amplifies the power of fat-burning chemicals produced by your body. And three, it increases the feeling of fullness from food. In short, it speeds up your metabolism, it helps your body burn fat more efficiently, and it helps you control hunger and cravings and maintain high energy levels. Phoenix also contains no artificial food dyes, fillers, or other unnecessary junk. And all that is why it has over 700 reviews on Amazon with a four-star average and another 250 reviews on my website with a four-and-a-half-star average. So if you want to burn more fat every day and have an easier time sticking to your diet without having to pump yourself full of harsh stimulants or potentially harmful chemicals, then you want to head over to www.legionathletics.com and pick up a bottle of Phoenix today. And just to show how much I appreciate my podcast peeps, use the coupon code podcast at checkout and you will save 10% on your entire order. And lastly, you should also know that I have a very simple 100% money back guarantee that works like this. You either love my stuff or you get your money back, period. You don't have to return the products. You don't have to fill out forms. You don't have to jump through any other hoops or go through any other shenanigans. So you really can't lose here. 
head over to www.legionathletics.com now, place your order, and see for yourself why my supplements have thousands of rave reviews all over the internet. And if for whatever reason, they're just not for you, contact us and we will give you a full refund on the spot. All righty, that is enough shameless plugging for now at least. Let's get to the show. Charlie, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Incredibly happy to be here, so it's my pleasure. Great. So um, tell us a bit about yourself. I mean, obviously, I, I did my prep, but for the people listening, and you know, which quickly gets to you ran this across the Sahara Desert, uh, which is insane. Yeah, before that, though, I was a drunk. So, okay. so. so <laughs> well, <laughs> did that help? No, that? I like was that. that? I, I like to start off with no, and I mean, it is a what, what's interesting about you know, the way I said it is that it is a uh, it's a direct line, you know, from one to the other, but. We'll, we'll work it backwards. So I did this, you know, I had this idea as, as a runner to try to become the first person ever to run all the way across the Sahara Desert. And how far is that just for people? It's, uh, you know, who knew Africa was so big? It's, uh, it was <laughs> like 4,600 miles, it turned out. <laughs> so um, it seemed like a good idea at the time, like, yeah. like so many things. But, you know, the, the run itself was this adventure that in a way became a... Uh, became a real linchpin for my life in a lot of ways, but I, I began to tell people that I was going to be the first person to run all the way across the Sahara. And I, I had done enough things in the running and athletic world where people weren't going to just completely dismiss it because while it was outlandish, it wasn't like completely out of the question. Yeah. Yet what I found was... What the was the most extreme thing you had done yeah, so at that point there was there was a there was a lot of I'd run you know 300 miles at one time. I had there was a race called the Eco Challenge Adventure Racing years ago, which was Mark Burnett's first big production before he created you know Survivor and Apprentice. So um, and those were like 10 day suffer fests. So they were 10 days of expedition running and biking and paddling and navigating and orienteering and there were team events so i always say that that's kind of where i learned once i got sober which talk about that in a minute but once i got sober that's where i really learned how to suffer was in adventure racing so when i had this idea to run across the sahara people did say though i mean to a person close friends strangers anybody i was willing to tell which was pretty much everybody because I, I have a strong belief that saying things out loud gives them a much greater power quotient in your life. You yeah, know? I think there's an individual component. That, like, there's there's some research that shows the opposite. That in some people, if they talk about their goals too much, it gives them uh, basically a, a sense of a false sense of satisfaction. Especially if people are you know praising yeah. them for something they say they're going to do. Oh, uh, right. So right. they can kind of shortcut the yeah. process of doing True. it. But then there's research that in some people committing to it, some things publicly uh, can increase stick to itiveness. Well, so I guess it kind of depends on you as an individual. In reality, of course, if you don't ever go do it, yeah. then then you're, as my British friend would say, then you're just a wanker. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, yeah. you gotta sooner or later you gotta. Yeah, it's true. You only get so much praise until like, right. What, what well, then you the become the guy that doing. always talks about stuff and never does it. Yeah. You know, or yeah. the girl. And so, um, what I found though was this interesting dynamic and and. And I think it's that I felt to myself like every time someone said that's impossible, you know, I did feel my heels digging in. I mean, almost like a, a physical thing. And I, I realized the, 
power. Like I actually began to look forward to telling people yeah, so they could say, you know, look, it's great. And I'm sure you're a good runner and all that, but that's just not possible. You know, there's too, it's too hot. You can't get resupplied. I mean, all the practical and rational reasons that this can't happen. And I did find that I let them, you know, I let them take possession of the impossibility of it. And I took full soul ownership of what was possible. Mm. And it really made a big difference. And I continued to tell the story. And I think that's a lot of it because it took a lot of money. It took a lot of effort. Ultimately, I had an Academy Award winning director get on board, James Mall, and, and then Matt Damon comes on board to produce the project. Happen? You know, How did they hear about it? Yeah, so James Mall, I was working as a television producer for a show called Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Oh, okay. So for many years, and I started on the pilot on that I think show. my wife likes that show. Oh my God, it was an amazing, <laughs> you can admit to liking it, it's okay. Uh, I actually, no, yeah, the only reason I say that is because she, we don't watch too much. If we yeah. watch any TV yeah, yeah. together, it's usually like a It hasn't a been on for a few years now. But, but, it but was, she'll tell me sometimes, you know, that uh, it, it's it's the it was the number HGTV, one TV yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah, it was exactly. the number one show on you know TV I would admit to that I would years. admit to yeah. like keeping up with the Kardashians and it was a good show <laughs> yeah yeah it was a good show we weren't all about the the you know personality drama there was some of that but it, it really was about taking a deserving family and building them a house and and so it was cool to work on there so because of that though I, I was around sure Hollywood, I'm using air quotes for those people listening, you know, people. And a friend of mine who I swear, he just got sick of hearing me talk about the Sahara. I said, look, if you'll shut up about this, I think I could get you a meeting with this guy, James Mall, who in, James had won the Academy Award for Best Documentary like just a couple years earlier. It was a movie called The Last Days, and it was literally about the, the last days of a, of, of a group of Hungarian Jews at the end of World War II, and they were in the Holocaust. And part. And so clearly this like really heavy, yeah. but heavy on storytelling. And so what I liked about James was, in my view, I, I didn't want to be part of a movie that was, because who wants to see me run 50 miles a day? Yeah. The numbers sound impressive and whatever, but really. Yeah, it's oh, not there that he is again. Hey, there That's he like is again. People, <laughs> I, I feel like when people uh, want to get a, get a view into my life, how does Mike Matthews live? I'm like, it's very yeah. boring, actually. Yeah. I, I, they I, want I wake the up at 5.30 every this, day. Right? Yeah, I don't do very, all I do is I sit in my cave and work. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not that yeah. exciting. Yeah. They want this. And so so I James said, I said, James, let's make a, you know, I want this to be a real film. I want it to be a film about, sure, we establish that we're running and we're doing this thing, but I want it to be about cultural exploration and I want it to be about the people. And Matt Damon and I co-founded this water nonprofit that we had no clue whether anything would actually come out of it. Today, that water nonprofit is called water.org and it's it's really the biggest nonprofit in the space, and Matt is still very much the face of it. And, you know, it all came out of this just crazy idea to run across the Sahara. And it is why a, the Sahara? It was a random thing. I had been doing a lot of racing. And so I will take a quick step back into addiction and sobriety. I have a background, you know, for 10 years of my 20s, I really struggled with addiction. And it's not that unusual a story. There's a whole lot of extreme athletes that came from extreme addiction. And there's a personality aspect to it. There's an endorphin release desire aspect to it. There's a need to fill some, if you want to get really psychological, and the need to fill some missing part of of me and all those things are true to a certain degree 
But ultimately, when I finally made a decision that I, I was going to die and my first son was born and if I wanted to be around for his life and then I had another son a couple of years later, then I better get my shit together. And it needed to happen like right away. And as I always like to say, I, I had a choice between living and dying and I chose running <laughs> and suffering. Yeah, suffering. And but. But kind of like, so I mentioned a minute ago that it, the like eco challenge taught me to suffer properly. Really addiction taught me to suffer. Like there's no suffering like doing the unexplainable going on a, you know, you just get a raise at work or a job promotion or some event and you go on a four day binge and piss away your money and ruin relationships and like nobody would choose to live that way because it's a horrible, awful existence. So once I finally got out of that life, what I did realize though is the greatest lessons that I learned were from addiction and were from, in, to be more specific, the suffering part of it, which most of it was suffering. But I, I was able to take that and transform it into action where it came to running and adventure. And what is that lesson exactly? Yeah, well, you know what? The, the lesson is that you have to do things in order to learn lessons. <laughs> and there's, I mean, that sounds, again, almost cliche and like I'm being flippant. But this idea that sitting on your sofa watching television or playing video games or whatever you might be doing is going to somehow enlighten you in some way is foolish, of course, and I don't think many people think that. They're maybe just not interested, though, in the kind of personal growth that can really only come from putting yourself into, and when I say risky, you know. Uncomfortable. At yeah, least, uncomfortable right? at least, right. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things I found that I was really good at, and I am still good at today, and, and my wife, we've been married five years, second marriage, said to me right after we uh, met, she said, you know, she heard my story the way you do when you're dating someone early and you're, you're trying to be honest, but you're putting the best face on us. Yeah. You know, it's you all, the, all the dance, right? <laughs> and she's like, man, you are really good at getting through stuff. Like, you know how to survive and get through. Do you have even the smallest clue how to just actually be happy? Like, when there are no problems? Like, I really, and I looked at it, I said, no, I have no clue. Maybe you could teach me because, like, I'm comfortable with discomfort and it's still like a problem today. Like, I. How I, so? Yeah, well, it's not that I purposely go out and like, you know, I don't know, whatever, have a car accident or overdraw my checking account. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to create chaos, but I am trying to do things. My life would, in theory, be easier if I took the nine to five sales job where I could just make a good living and come home to my wife every night and run the occasional marathon on the weekend and whatever. Like if I had that life, and there are times when my currently chaotic life feels so out of control that I look at that and I'm like, man, I'd like to try that. <laughs> and yet, I, I think of uh, did, you, did you read the book Principles by Ray Dalio? No, I know I know the book. I know the short version of the book. But okay. yeah, he talks about in there yeah. and I and I agree with him that you can basically you have two ends of a, of a spectrum. You have savor life or like make a difference basically or yeah. Yeah, there there's or achieve uh what was the top of Maslow's pyramid um yeah. you know uh the uh, what's the what's the term itself? Oh, brain's not working right yeah, now. But but 
Yeah. Anyways, the point is, you can't have you can have you can choose if you really want to save her life. That's what we're talking about. If you yeah. have the you know you yeah. have the job, you make the money, and you and you save her life. And there's something yeah. to be said for that. Yeah. And I actually agree with Dalio's take is you have to really be honest with yourself as an individual. If you if that's really what you want to do is just save her life, um, as long as you know that these things are mutually exclusive, you're not going to be you're not going to make a big Im- impact in the world just because it, it takes too much time. It takes too much work and you have to continually deal with a, a lot of burden and a lot of stress. It's well, just so, the way it is. So many people and get maybe married. Maybe you can stop at one point, maybe because he talks about that, but maybe when you're, you know, at some point you can be like, all right, now I'm changing. Now yeah. I'm going over to the same. Well, and that, okay. And the best example of that is what? Retirement, right? Yeah. I'm going to wait until I'm 65 before I actually go out and live the way that I really want to live. I mean, what kind well, do you of think, freaking though? life is that? I mean, me, I, I mean, I just do I not agree, but, get but that. But in, in your case, do you think at some point you're going to be like, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm actually going to, I'm going to swing in the other direction a little when bit. When I'm living put, under a bridge, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, because I, mean, I can, I can relate because I'm very much the same way. I just always want to keep going. I don't know. I, I don't want to stop. I just don't. I don't. No. And it's not, you know, savor to me is such a, you know, it's such a scary, boring. I, you know, yes, there are times when I need to I need to savor something because I am capable of being in the middle or at the end of a big project, even running across the friggin' Sahara Desert, and I'm already thinking about what I'm doing next. And I'm and I have this self conversation of, how about trying to be present, dude? Just have, how about trying to just be right here, feel this. You probably get the same thing with writing, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm the oh same my way. Gosh. Writing Once is Once you get like, toward the end of the project, I'm like, yeah. God, I just want to get this done and start on the next thing. Yeah, because, well, first of all, because I already hate what I wrote. Uh, yeah, I mean, not really, but it's just, you know, once I've read my own... My, in, a t- in a couple of years, you'll hate what you wrote. That's, yeah. how, it well, is, my you know, that's book, how it is with me. Though I've only written one book. I've written a lot of articles, but I've only written one book, and it's a memoir. So it is my story. So I, I, I commonly point out to myself that it's not like I can be wrong. Like, it's my story. Like, I, it, I get to tell it the way I want to tell it. I wrote 700 pages for a 300-page memoir because I wasn't capable of self-editing. I found out that for me, I had to get it all out. Like, if I was going to tell a story of the Sahara Desert, like, that story in a draft form was 100 freaking pages long. And while I'm not sure that the Sahara couldn't have been its entire, its own entire book, but that would be for the reader who wants to read about that. So the memoir, of course, is an all-encompassing thing. But I also, even in that, I tried to move the story along. So sobriety, I don't want to give away too much, but probably listeners can tell I, I am sober today and have been for over 26 years. So in my book, I don't drag people through 200 pages of a drunkalog, you know, and all the shit that I messed up and yeah. whatever. I, they can you, read like right, a Tucker Max book for that. Or exactly, <laughs> which is highly entertaining. But you get the idea for 60 pages of it. You're like, wow, that guy, I'm glad I didn't, you know, run into him in a bar, you know, or on the road. You know, it's this idea of, um, you mentioned books, and I'm sorry to be so rambling and all over, but I, I love this kind of, Freeform, I'm reading a book right now called Anti-Fragile. Mm-hmm. Telebnacy. Exactly. Yeah. What a mind-blowing, I mean, it's one of the first books I've read in a while that really makes me feel stupid sometimes. Like, I have to, 
uh, a friend of mine recommended it, and he said, I know you like to listen to books on tape or on, on you know, while you're running. Don't do that with this one. Buy the book because, yeah. frankly, if you're listening to it, you're not going to get it. Yeah, I, st- I stopped listening to audiobooks. Like, I would listen to them. I, I prefer to read. I prefer to read a hard copy book, but yeah. digital is too convenient, and your highlights and your notes, are, you can pull them all out. It's very easy, right? No doubt. And so I, what I would do is I would, I would supplement the – I read first thing in the morning and then at night. I would supplement that with in the car. But I stopped for the reason of just like, yeah, because yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I was like me just being OCD. So if I'm if I'm hearing something and I like that or I want to make a highlight or a note, pause it, wait for a red light, flip over the Kindle. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, it, but I actually got through probably an extra 20 pages a day. Yeah. It was annoying, but yeah. it, it, it produced. Well, you know what I do? Now I listen to lectures and stuff. Yeah, that it's, exactly. It's, yeah. You know what I listen to? I listen to Ron Chernow books if I'm going to listen to something. Ron Chernow's the yeah, guy. Right, because the thing is, you know, Washington is 45 hours of listening. Yeah, yeah. And quite frankly, I'm not going to read that book. It's too dense. It's whatever. But listening to it on a six-hour run I actually don't have to pay like so close attention to every single detail. That's interesting. So you prefer that over music, huh? I I can't, you know, music, A, I get too, unless I've really scripted out the right kind of music, I'm too manipulated by the tempo of the music. Mm. And it actually does exhaust me at some point. Um, I can be, I can remain engaged with the book, um, whereas I will lose interest in the music. So I mix it up sometimes, but... But back to, so did you, re, you read anti I, I haven't read anti Well, the idea, well, know, you probably know, know idea, behind though. it, is really this. And, I, and I, I think, again, that maybe listeners will enjoy this idea because this is what I've taken from, and I'm only a, a few chapters in even right now, is this idea of being comfortable with chaos and randomness. Like when you get through something hard, when you get through a difficult situation, either by your own choosing like something you've uh, self-inflicted, <laughs> like doing a friggin' you know ultra obstacle course race, right? That's self-inflicted. Don't no, I don't think anybody's here with a gun to their head. Like yeah, you're paying for it. Actually. Right? You're actually you're paying, paying for the to privilege. be part of this pain. And so, um, and then there's things like going to prison or having a disease or whatever might happen. That, life. Yeah, like you didn't choose a lot of these things, but if you can embrace whatever is happening with this with this idea. That just surviving, I always picture like holding, white knuckling, like holding onto the chair and just trying to get through it. If that's what you do and that's all you do, then ultimately at the end of whatever you've gotten through, you're essentially, your goal is to be the same person you were before it started. Like that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to survive it. You're trying to just get through it. If you can find a way to take it to that next level and say, and really open your heart and say, what am I gonna learn from this? Like, what can I learn? How, how can I not just get through it? How can I actually thrive through it and, and get to the other side of it and be, and feel like I learned, not that I learned some lesson, like, like some new nutrition tweet know, tip. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's, it's about, am I changed as a person? And I think that that's what this book you know, I'm still just getting into it, but I think that that's where a lot of it comes from, and that, that we're that's the premise. Yeah, that's, people want to like have perfect experiences. Well, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, first perfect of all? lives. I see yeah. a lot of that where I live. Oh my we were God. just talking. Well, and we know uh, you, can you know and, behind their closed doors, they got the same crap that you're dealing with that we're all dealing with, and because if you want to actually do things, accomplish things, make a difference in the world, whatever you know, shape that takes. I have this, this mantra of mine to, you know, to keep it, you have to give it away. 
And so whatever you're good at, whatever I'm good at, and what I'm good at is I've been sober a really long time, and I am actually good at sobriety. I, I understand in myself where it comes from, why I feel the way I feel sometimes around it, except the fact that I may not have all the answers. There are times when I need to not overthink it. I'm having a terrible day. Even after 26 years, what I'd like to go do is go do a line and drink a beer. I mean, there's a part of me that even after all these years, that addict is still in there going, yeah, let's go do that. <laughs> you know. But I don't. I, I say to myself, instead of denying even, I'm like, okay, let's just let's shelve that thought until tomorrow. Well, I go to bed and I get a decent night's sleep and I wake up in the morning and I'm like, what the, That's the last thing was you I thinking? Like, I'm going for a run. This is a beautiful day. Yeah. Let's go get busy. You know, and, I think of uh, talking about Chernow. I, I read his biography of Rockefeller, right? Oh, yeah. And, and Rockefeller, uh, uh, do, do you remember when he was saying that uh, – he, he never, so he was a teetotaler, he didn't drink, right? right. But, but he had said, I'm paraphrasing or exactly, basically he, he never became an alcoholic because he never took the first drink, basically. Yeah. And that was yeah. one of his things is like, you know, he was uh, obviously an interesting person, but he lived very strictly according to, yeah. you know, uh, Christian uh, uh, morals in, in his personal life. Yeah. Um, and he was merciless in business, which was an yeah. interesting dichotomy, but I think of that. And, I, and actually, I think of that myself. I've never, I don't drink. I've actually never even been drunk. Which huh. is strange. My uh, wife either. So yeah. I so, look at her like she's an alien. And and so people ask me like, oh, why? Right? And I'm like, I don't know. I just never really got into it. And then you know, the more I got around it, as I got older, it just seemed like one. Eh, why? It's not a habit worth taking up. I think, dude. But you know why though? You're a normal person. Where at least in that re regard, you may not be normal in lots of other ways. But I, I like my wife is a great example. She has a glass of wine. But if she has a second glass of wine. Usually by about halfway through that, she's kind of going, eh, you know, I've kind of had enough. Like, she, we need to go to a restaurant where she can order one and a half glasses. Because like, <laughs> that's, that's like, yeah, because I don't want to pay the $12 for the second glass. I'm like, you're not going to leave that, are you? Like, as, a, as, yeah, a, yeah. as an alcoholic, I'm like, going, what is wrong with this picture? Yeah. But, um, but interestingly, like Rockefeller, I would argue that he probably was an alcoholic. Because you can be an alcoholic and not drink. Because a normal person doesn't actually have to go to great effort to control their behavior. Right. It's no skin off my wife's teeth to to she doesn't have to control. Yeah, like, sure. Like all of a sudden she's gonna have two bottles of wine. Yeah, like, that's it's a, not it's a switch. A, it's all found yeah. done, whatever. Whereas with me, I I would have to control it like immensely. You know, I still get the question regularly, you know, couldn't you just have a beer? I'm like, yeah. I absolutely could. Chances are like pretty much 100% I could have one beer tonight and that would be it. I could probably do it again tomorrow night. I, I might do that for a year, but <laughs> the day would come. 100%, no doubt about it, the day would come that I would not just have one beer, I'd have 100. And the worst part about it though is that in the meantime, I'm torturing myself every day with the thought of having the second beer or the third beer or whatever. Like yeah. it's such a, it's so much easier to just not do it. Yeah. If I could take a pill right now and like, and, and not be an alcoholic anymore and drink like a normal person, no way in hell would I ever consider it. You know, early, and this is actually, a, I'm, I'm, I'm asking, I'm answering a question you didn't ask me. 
But I ran like an addict when I finally got sober at 29 years old. I ran like every time I went out that door, I ran as hard as I possibly could every single time because I, I wanted to beat the addict out of me. Like if I could have taken a knife and just sliced it out, I would have. Like I, I thought that that was poison. That was like cancer. If I could just get rid of this, you know, then I'd feel like a normal person. That was person. like the self-mortification, what is the, yeah, the whip on the, absolutely. you know, and the Silas belt. Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. And, and uh, self, what do they call it, flagellation. Yeah. So, although I always made fart jokes when somebody said that. Self-flagellation? So I clearly didn't understand <laughs> what was going on. How would you fart on yourself? <laughs> Maybe. In some, sometimes that's actually a, a form of self-punishment. Yeah, and, and I did. I felt badly enough about myself and, and the kind of person I was. that I, It was a form of punishment, and it was also a form of absolution at the same time. And anyway, to cut to the chase, after like three years of that and running like 30 marathons and because clearly I wasn't an addict, right? I ran 30 marathons in the first three years. I, I clearly had an addiction under control. I finally realized, though, that that my addictive nature and that part of me was the best part of me. And then, in fact, if I was not an addict with those character traits and flaws, that I'd, I probably would be the guy sitting on the sofa with the game controller or the remote control in my hand, you know, eating chips and watching TV. Yeah. You know, it not, makes not running the uh, Sahara. Shit, no. It makes me want to do things. And where I have to try to find balance is way overrated, in my opinion. I'm not seeking balance. Yeah. But I do need to, I need to be aware. You know, my wife looks at me every once in a while and I see the look when I say I'm going to go do this, do this race this weekend or I'm going to go to that thing. She'll look at me like, really? Like, you've been gone like five weeks in a row or whatever doing this. And and so that's a like I lose sight of the personal parts of my life sometime yeah. and how I do need to just like be. If I'm moving, I don't have to think too hard. I don't have to like. Like I'm busy, I'm yeah. doing stuff, I'm I'm active, and it's all for this great purpose, whatever the hell that is. And so the thing that I still struggle with is finding a way to just like calm down. Yeah, and, and, and I can relate to that. And be that's the the same. Right? I've been in that place with my wife a number of times where she's like, "But what if I become been... irrelevant this week? Like if I don't do something?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I, I guess uh, I've just tried to I've just tried to to build in enough. I take take that talking about work life balance again. I, yeah, I, I don't think there's any. I think that's more of a that's a, a mirage more than anything else. I think that for what you're talking about um, to do things that 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 matter if you if you think on a big scale, it means yeah, your life's going to have to go way out of balance. But I, this is just me speaking from my experience. The only thing that has seemed to help is is then swinging it back the other way occasionally and letting it go out of balance in the other direction. Yeah. And so for me, I don't have much of a social life. So that, that is what it is. I don't yeah. care about that. I don't care about hanging out with friends or anything. I, mean, I work with my friends and that's about it. So for me, it's like, cool, my family and swing it that way and make sure that I put enough there. But I've, I know exactly yeah. what you mean. Well, and you know, and she... And, and if my, I fucked it up too much, my wife would probably leave me one day. She'd yeah, like, well, no doubt. Enough. No doubt. Well, I mean, you, you need to be present to actually have a relationship. And I, and I am reminded of that, you know, regularly. And she, my wife is a very, you know, she's... A scientist and an amazing intellect and she you know she helps keep me I hate the word grounded because that's I'm not grounded at all and she doesn't want me to be she she likes that part of me but she also reminds me every once in a while that I occasionally make myself so busy that I don't have time to actually pay attention to whether I'm doing something that's actually useful 
I love, like even coming here to Tahoe, I actually love the PodFest. And you probably do too, because you get to do a number of these in a day and hopefully have dynamic conversations that are different with different people and get it done. Because I don't like to say no to things. So out there in this sort of real world, you know, I don't care if somebody has, you know, 12 downloads a week or, or 12 million, I normally say yes, because I figure if someone has sought me out, I owe them the, the respect to, you know, to talk to them. But I love coming to this because it, it gives me the chance, almost like any, an, an event to just run an ultra marathon yeah, yeah, today. Yeah, ultra, yeah, ultra podcast. Ultra podcast <laughs> yeah. And it's, I love this conversation because this is different than anything I've done today or that I normally do. Hey, quickly, before we carry on, if you are liking my podcast, would you please help spread the word about it? Because no amount of marketing or advertising gimmicks can match the power of word of mouth. So if you are enjoying this episode and you think of someone else who might enjoy it as well, please do tell them about it. It really helps me. And if you are going to post about it on social media, definitely tag me so I can say thank you. You can find me on Instagram at Muscle for Life Fitness, Twitter at Muscle for Life, and Facebook at Muscle for Life Fitness. Have you recorded an audiobook before? Did you record an audiobook? Yeah, for your so book? my book, I, I had to it? audition to read it, but yeah, so yeah. Simon and Schuster published my memoir. I mean, cool. the book has done really well, and I've sold a ton of audiobooks, interestingly, because runners do like to listen to, to books when they, when they run. Yeah. And it's called Running Man very positively reviewed all over the place, including in the New York Times. And so it's, the book has done really well, but it, it was funny, I got a phone call. I was actually in Poland for a wedding, strangely. I got a call, like an urgent call from the publisher saying, we wanna do an audiobook, and you know, but we need to know if you're capable of doing it. Can you audition? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I literally had to get my. I mean, phone. some authors, yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. Read. And, right. Yeah, it doesn't, just doesn't, no doubt. doesn't play. I have, a, I have an odd voice or at least i'm told and like dogs in the next county right now can hear me like they're, they're like Ooh. you know i it carries over everybody else's voice i drown people out uh, my wife has a very loud voice too so we're we're very unpopular when we go to restaurants and things yeah. like that the people look loudness works for audiobooks yeah though. it does so i read for like six days for six hours a day you know and it was fantastic i loved doing it this little studio in Asheville, north carolina and and, so you um, liked it. I, I hated it. I just got done recording. I'm up to, I'm releasing third editions of uh, two of my more popular books. And we did, it was probably about 80 hours in the chair. Wow. In, well, like, in like three weeks. I actually, really I haven't done work in a long time that I actually, I like, got to that point where like, I fucking hate this. Yeah. By the end of the, when we got, when we got toward the end of the audiobook, I was like, I truly hate this. I can't wait for this to be <laughs> Like to I be really over. hate this. I'm not just saying I hate yeah, it. Yeah, no. I was like, like I, I, I almost physically feel this now. It, right? You know what I mean? I, I actually enjoyed it. I'm, I mean, I probably would get over it uh, after 80 hours, that's for sure. But um, I mean, not 80 hours of recording. That's what it took. Cause it also, it served for me, at least as a final draft as well. Yeah. Cause inevitably yeah. I'm reading, I'm like, no, I don't like that. So hold yeah. on. And I would, I would edit it in my phone. Cause you know, the manuscript I'm working through in Google yeah. docs so yeah. I can do that. And that just made it added time. Yeah. And <laughs> I do some writers, you know, workshops and I'm not a, my wife gives me a hard time when I say I'm not a professional writer. I'm not a professional writer only because it's not my main way that I try to make a living. You know, I think I, 
I could do a lot more of it if I chose to, but I can't do everything. And so, so whatever. But I, I love, I tell other writers all the time who are trying, especially young writers who want to break in and start writing articles. I'm like, if you sit down and you read it out loud to someone else, don't just read it to yourself, read it out loud to somebody else. And like, if you're embarrassed by your own language or you know, it's not your voice and you're like overwriting, you know, one of the, I, my wife gives me the best compliment she ever gave me was that I have a, a, an amazing vocabulary. <laughs> and because she's the smartest person I've ever known. And I'm a college dropout. You know, I drank my way through college and couldn't get through it. Uh, and I do. It's because I love to read. I've been a voracious reader my whole life. And so I, I know a lot of really big words. But if you read my book, there's not like two of them in there, you know, because I want to... That's the essence of good writing. Though. Yeah, it's, it's not a about plain spoken. I write exactly the way you're hearing me talk. Yeah. It's exactly the way I write, yeah. you know, with, without as many run-on sentences. That's my voice. And so I, learned, I did learn, just as you said, you know, if you read it out loud to somebody, if you kind of overwrote a paragraph, you can feel it when you say it out yeah. loud. The next level of that is having somebody read it to you. Because then you see their reactions. Oh, yeah. Like, what? Yeah, if they can't read it to you, if they can't get the new, or nuance, if they stumble right, on or, something, yeah, yeah, yeah. or then, and that's also, yeah, I didn't even I, go that far, but reading it yourself, yes, is that's a great tip for yeah, just improving your yeah. writing. I do a lot of speaking too, so I, I do get the sometimes the unfortunate opportunity to you know, practice either in front of my wife or other people, and and I know if I'm saying something that's either just disingenuous or I'm trying so hard to. I mean, I'm an anecdotal speaker and writer. I'm not a prescriptive person in general. I'm not an advice giver. I'm not the person saying, you know, if you want to do this, here's what you should do. I would say, if you want to do this that I did, here's what I did. (laughs) Here's how I did it. And if there's something useful there for you, then great. And if somebody presses me and says, hey, can you help me with a program to run a marathon or whatever, then sure, I'll sit down with that person and I'll actually tell them what to do. But in general, I don't like doing that. But I like to tell them that they, you know, writing is a, is a muscle. And if you don't flex it, if you don't sit down to write regularly or however you might do your writing, then regularly. stand if up you, to yeah, write. Yeah, if you want to have any hope, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you have to write regularly. And it's amazing how much better you get. Absolutely. You know, if you're doing it on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, I look back at stuff. So I've written between books and articles, I've probably written a million and a half words. And I look back at stuff I wrote. So the second editions of these books that I'm updating, I wrote four years ago. And so I, I thought I could just go through, update things. And I start going into it. And I'm like, I hate all this. And I start reading So scratch. what's different? I re- I'm just a better writer now. Well, not just that though, but what I mean, the other thing is different. My not, standards are probably higher qu- now. Not a trick question. Well, your standards are, but you're different. Yeah, sure. So the story I always tell is about the Boston Marathon. Like I've run Boston like six times, yeah. but it's it's from 1980, mid 80s, all the way up till a few years ago, right? So it's spread over a long period of time. Well, guess what? The Boston course, it's exactly the same every single year. But those first couple of years. I saw like the ground, my watch feet in front of me. I could not have told you one thing about the course. By the time I did the last one, I high-fived every kid. I stopped in Wellesley and kissed girls. I ate every orange slice out of some five-year-old's hand who handed it to me. Like I had that experience. And Boston was no different. I was different. It's not that one was good and one was bad. They were just different. Yeah, I mean, I think... 
this is a writing point. I think it's a life point. So you look, if you were to look back on stuff you wrote uh, years ago, and you probably, if you didn't feel at least I could do this better, yeah. that's probably a bad sign. Yeah. If you are considering you yourself an actual, yeah, an <laughs> yeah. actual writer. But then in, I think in general, right, if you, if you look back at yourself, um, and, and this is something that I, I try to remain cognizant of, look back at yourself at, even a year ago, and if you have, if you think exactly the same, if you can't find one thing that you think differently about or one way that you are different, I think that's also a bad sign. And I speak for myself personally. Absolutely. Reading helps a lot with that as well. But also having experiences, even back to what you're saying, just go out and do stuff. Yeah. I think of Fight Club, right, where they, they joke about who wants to die without scars? You know what I mean? Yeah. He looks at the old, what did he say? Like the 1955 car uh, still in perfect condition. What a shame, right? Yeah, no, it's so true. And I mean, there's that old joke uh, about, you know, leaving, who wants to leave a pretty corpse? You know, yeah. you, I want to be on my, I want to have, you know, used it all up. Do you yeah. still have, if you're, if you're gearing up for something, do you still have though the initial, maybe it's just inertia, like, do you feel that at all? And, and then once you get going, you're like, all right, I'm into this. Or is it yeah. for you, like you make a decision to do something and you just don't feel any inertia and it's just go, go, go? Um, you know, that's a great question. And I, I, it depends on the project. It depends on what I'm doing. You know, again, you, you as a professional writer, among other things, are, it sounds like you have more discipline around writing than I do. And I, I am that guy as a writer who will clean the closet, wash my car. Like I will, do, I will do, I will do right. I will do everything that doesn't need to be done. Yeah. Because those things, it's important. Yeah. You know, I get those out of the way before I write. Who could possibly... at, least at least you're not going through the Hunter Thompson uh, routine. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, my joke is who could possibly write with dishes, clean dishes in the dishwasher? Those need to be put away right now. <laughs> all I can think of. Right. And so, but, but with a project, and I'll even, I'll even move ahead to this big project yeah. that I have coming up. It's called 5.8. And this project is, you know, ultimately I'm going to go from the lowest place on the planet, which is the Dead Sea, to the top of Mount Everest. Really? Human powered. So it's the lowest to the highest. And of course, it's a metaphor, but it's also, you know, in this case, it's going to be made into a real thing. The idea being that we all... You know, Why 5.8? Maybe a dumb so question. 5.8. No, no. I set you up to ask me that question. Thank you. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> My ignorance uh, made so me look good. The journey point to point. No, not it. Not it. You would, no one would ever get this. And, and you know, the, the point to point journey is probably about 4,500 miles. But in reality, and if I'm speaking to an audience, I always suck people in the same way. They're, in reality, it's only 5.8 miles. It's 5.8 vertical miles from the shore of the Dead Sea to the top of Mount Everest. And the point that I'm really trying to make there too is that we, you and I, everybody else who's here in Lake Tahoe, everybody on this planet lives within that 5.8 mile tiny sliver of space that covers the planet. Like we're all, we're in it together. I always tell people, you know, you, you may not want to be part of my, this project, but you're already in it because you live in that 5.8 miles. And I am, my wife is very much, uh, um, she's a wildlife biologist, environmental scientist, you know, all kinds of fancy things. And we do care about the planet. We, you know, we do a lot of things that I think are, are very positive, but I, we try very hard not to take the negative approach of saying, you know, look at all the destruction, look at the people that are being harmed, because it's, it goes just right over people and through people now. You see so much of it. So I, I take the viewpoint of looking at beauty and what my goal out of 5.8 and by going from one point to the other is to show people what they're missing and, and why 
protecting the planet uh, should matter. That's great. You know what I like about that too is uh, it's easy to, to point out what's wrong in the world with people, anything. It's easy Anybody to be, it's easy that, to sit right? on the sidelines and be a yeah. critic, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a, what was it? Is a Bucky Fullminster quote where basically says like, um, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but paraphrasing basically that point of, yeah, any, it's easy to criticize, but that doesn't work. Instead of just trying to tear things down, you have to offer what the next thing actually is. You have to, it's much harder to be creative and offer a solution. Yeah. It's, I think it's fine if you're going to point out what's wrong, if you can also offer a solution. And you could argue that there is a there is a role for there are the Voltaires out there and that's and that's sure. and that's what they that's what they do is they point out the absurdity we live in a in a clown world yes it's true run by clown people and so there's a I think there's a value to that but what you're talking about I think is much more valuable yeah, you're, well, you know, you're saying wanna, here's something I can do about it and here's wanna, something all of us right. can do about I it I want to take people who are and I, I hate to even use the language, but like climate change deniers or whatever, that's fine. Be, be that. I always make the analogy of if I, if I get shot, like if I'm shot and I have a bullet wound, is the first priority who shot me or is the first priority to save my freaking life? You know, I can tell you right now, I'm worried right now about living. <laughs> you know, I want to get to the hospital. I want to get this figured out. And then maybe at some point I do care about you know, how or why I got shot or whatever. But the, the plan of this is the same thing. We can spend countless hours arguing about why things are the way they are, or we can just agree to do something about it, you know, and to, to try to be, you know, have a big vision. But I also am very careful about saying that this is a personal quest for me, and my why is not as satisfying to most people as maybe it should be or could be, because I don't pretend to know why. When I ran across the Sahara Desert, I ran 4,500 miles, and I ran two marathons every single day for 111 consecutive days without taking a day off. Yes, I started a nonprofit with Matt Damon that today is the biggest water Aren't nonprofit in the world. Aren't you supposed to die? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, and, and the thing is, all the questions that I thought I was going to answer by running across the Sahara Desert, I answered those probably by day 20. By the time I was done on day 111, I had so many more questions. Yeah. And to think that it was like I was satisfied. You know what I was? I was sad. I was bummed that it was over despite the hardship and I was proud and relieved to have accomplished this thing with, with two teammates. You know, all three of us made it all the way across, and it was this, this big adventure. But and I would tell people listening, you don't have to run the Sahara to have that experience. I mean, I've had, I've had a, my own version of that experience. Just, just getting through that project I just told you about, yeah. where that, was the, that was when I was done. It's when I was done with the audiobooks. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a silly example, but it was a pain, in, it was, it was a bit, it was a pain in the ass. Starting a business, starting a family, yeah. doing, doing a project like what you just described is is your version of that the and, same and, thing? And you go through the same emotional experience, and there's yeah. an emotional curve to it, and so if and it's very fulfilling. If you don't say "fuck this" at least five times during a, a hard project, or yeah. even even while raising your kids, I gotta tell you, if there's parents out there who they never like hate their kids at least once in a while, and I don't mean really necessarily deep down to hate them, but like right, it's like for uh-huh. God's sakes. Yeah. Please stop doing that, you know, whatever, or your job or even your, you know, your spouse. I mean, again, there's a difference between genuine hatred and just if you if you don't hate some moments in your life and you 
I always say that we spend 99% of our time basically preparing for the 1% when things go wrong. Like, and that's the whole point. Who, who we are is far more revealing or revealed in that 1% than it is in the other 99. The 99% is pretty easy in general. It might be tedious. It might be a little mind-numbing. And you, you may hate the, the monotony of it, even if it's kind of exciting. There's still, there's difficulty in that. You become but, desensitized to anything eventually. Yeah. yeah, well, okay, run, and so running across the Sahara Desert. Yeah. I knew instinctively making this, this film. I'm like, I am not even remotely interested in making a film about running across the Sahara Desert, despite the fact that it's called Running the Sahara. Who the hell wants to see me run 50 miles a day for 100 and whatever straight days. Exactly. Hey, there he is again. Hey, there he is again. Hey, there. You know, it's like, that would be absolutely boring. What's interesting is the interpersonal dynamics along the way. And I, I even told my running partners, I'm like, if you're going to yell at me or if something's going to happen and you don't give the camera crew a two-minute heads up, to, to let them turn on the camera so that we can record it, then don't do this with me because I want it to be organic and real. And ironically, the film makes me look like a bit of a jackass. <laughs> not that I'm not a jackass, but it, it, it takes, like every time I did yell at somebody or whatever, it, that's in there. And so I'm kind of like the hero and the villain in the movie. And that's okay with me because that's probably the... You know, I'm probably 20% asshole and 80% pretty nice guy, you know, kind of in real life, too. But I think that that's, I want to share the struggle. Like, if I'm going to make a film, if I'm going to write a book uh, or an article, give a talk, do a podcast, why would I want to put, it's not like I'm, like, beating myself down and saying I'm a piece of shit, but if I don't share the struggle, or if I like represent that I've got all the answers, that is just such nonsense. And I, I don't really believe that anybody has all the answers. They, they might potentially have all their answers. They certainly don't have all my answers and, and nor would I want them to. I need to do it myself. Yeah. You know, I think of, uh, in relation to suffering in particular, I forget who said this, but basically there was, there's a, a writer said, and this was kind of a, just a, a quip uh, about, other, about writing in general, is uh, the, book, that a, the book could have been good if only the author were willing to suffer a bit more. And I think that there's something to be yeah. said for... Yeah. For, for any level or any any anything That's an anything awesome quote. Yeah, I like that it's st stuck in my it's stuck in my brain but yeah. um, well people want but that's life I think there's some there's a lot to be said with uh, what the work that it takes to to make a, a relationship work or raise good kids or to build a business it's not all suffering no but there are if you're gonna and and this is at least for me I have I feel like I have high standards for myself um, and I tend to hold other people up to those standards to some degree. It just is who, is who I am. But that involves a certain level of suffering, not just with work, but in life. And, uh, you know, so I think of that and I think that, I mean, clearly you are comfortable with, with going through that, but I'm sure it's paid off in many ways. Well, there's also a, there's a, you know, an art form and some of it sure comes with age and, and whatever, but, you know, I am, I am good at apologizing because it's one thing, you know, I do hold people to that same high standard. And, and like in the Sahara, you know, I was out there running my ass off every single day. And if someone didn't have the same passion that I did, and I don't even mean just I was a little unfair. There was my fellow runners, but there were crew people out there. And yeah, they were maybe maybe they did get a paycheck or whatever. But still, 
there was a limit to how much shit I could give them because they couldn't actually have the exact same passion for the project that I did. Mm -hmm. Yet I kind of expected that from them. And it wasn't until later that I, I did have to go make some amends and I sort of realized That's I was... the quintessential CEO's problem. Yeah. Right? Just finding people. Yeah. And, and you know that what? They really get it. And people appreciate. They do appreciate most of the time... There's only a couple of people in my life that haven't like forgiven me. Like, and that's, and I actually recognize through therapy and through a lot of other stuff, that's actually on them. That's not, I mean, I didn't like, I didn't murder a family member or something. I, you know, we had an argument, right? And I might have called them a name and they probably called me one. And maybe they're, you know, to me, that kind of stuff is so unimportant. And it's so, it is important that I acknowledge it, my responsibility in it, but I can't make somebody else do it. And if they all, if they want to write me out of their life and that's the, you know, we're not friends anymore or whatever, then I don't know. It was probably an argument well spent then. I can move on to other people. Yeah, probably. Well, how often do we worry about the people, you know, nine out of 10 people can like me and who do I focus on? Freaking number 10. Yeah. Right. I, I'm, I give all my energy to trying to make that person like me instead of giving my love and energy to the nine people who already do. Yeah. And I think I do a better job these days because everybody is a critic. Back to our critic thing. If you write something, you film something, you say something and you put it out there in the world. You're too personally attached. To somebody it. is going to criticize you. Somebody's going to call you a name. Somebody's going to tell you you don't know what you're talking about or you're completely wrong or whatever. And if you take all of that personally all the time, it just plays right into that person actually needs your response. And I think I've done a pretty good job through the years of not responding to negativity. I feel it sometimes, and I try not to read reviews. That's funny. I do the opposite. I've read and replied to every single. I mean, I have, I don't know, 7,000 reviews on Amazon. I've literally read and replied to every one of them. And so if someone criticizes you, what do you say? Um, I, in some cases, the, like let's take, you know, a lot of one star book reviews are not kind of nonsensical. Um, and so in that case, it, it's just, I have copy and paste responses and then I'll, I'll call, I'll, if they need to be customized, I'll customize them. Right. Um, but it's, it's usually just long lines of, Hey, um, thanks for the feedback. I'm sorry. You didn't like the book. Let me know if you have any questions or need any help. And that's it for that. And then, and then <laughs> I, I actually it. mean that I, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not upset. That's me, not me being passive. It's actually not me being passive aggressive because I don't give a shit that this person yeah. thinks the book, this book yeah. was dumb. All the information on the internet for free. Yeah. Okay. That's what they think. Fine. Yeah. Big deal. Yeah. Uh, and, but I've actually gotten a lot of good feedback yeah. from one star reviews again, tend to be not very valuable, but two and three star reviews uh, have been very valuable over the years. And that's where I've gotten a lot of mm-hmm. a fair amount of, so I keep a running list of things that I want to change and update in the next editions of whatever book. Books. Yeah. And a fair amount of that comes from those negative reviews because people will bring up valid points or they'll, they'll tell me something. In some cases, at this point, I already knew it because somebody else had brought it up or it's something I didn't even think of. And I'm like, well, well and if you can take your ego and get it out of exactly. the way and, and actually hear what they said, maybe they didn't say it eloquently, yeah. but, but part of you knows, just like in most arguments that we have, Part of you knows if if there's a, a nugget of truth or even a whole lot of truth. Exactly. And, and, and I'll take that and I'll acknowledge that and I'll just ignore the rest. Yeah, if it's yeah, yeah. And, and another thing that's always been for me is, I guess this kind of goes back to even at a young age, it's, it probably sounds a little bit bad, but I, I think that uh, a lot of people can't live up to their own standards themselves. So why the fuck should I care what they think about me and what yeah. I'm doing? Yeah. And, and so that's all I've in a, I, I, I still 
am a personable person. I think I like people, and I and I and I, and I don't I don't run around judging people, or, or uh, and I just enjoy genuinely sitting down and talking to people like this. Yeah. But at the same time, um, I don't really care what they think about yeah. me and yeah. what I'm doing. No, and I and I I think that that's taken me a while to get there, but I'm absolutely the same way. And it's so I don't know if you know this part of my story. But you know my prison story? Yeah. Okay. I, 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 I was on yeah. my list, but I just I figured yeah, we'll just you know, jump in this I know, and see where it goes. We'll just touch on it real quickly. So I mentioned running this era. So I, I had this movie, Where I Am. If you had a, a PE coach uh, or if you were in the military or a policeman or fireman or, or a CEO or, and you were in a position of authority, you understood a lot of what happened in running the Sahara for me. I was the expedition leader and we had a goal. We had a mission. We agreed before the project that this was, you know, under, you know, we're going to yeah, get. You're the standard bearer. We're going to get Black from here. Full. We're going to get from here to here. Yeah. And we're going to do it how, whatever it takes, we're going to get the job done. And it's not like I was a jerk to people, you know, all the time. But but at the times when I didn't think they were living up to their part of the bargain, it meant that I wasn't necessarily all that nice to them. Yeah. And and I wasn't. Especially if you feel like they're jeopardizing. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I also know that what it was a lot of times was fear-based. They actually were, and a, a brief example in the Sahara, we were not given permission to go into Libya until literally three days before we got there. So we had run 3,000 miles before we got permission. Well, at about 2,500 miles, we reached this, this center point of the Sahara Desert, you know, Agadez Niger. And... It's in the movie, so I'm not busting anybody, but my teammates wanted to quit. And it's, it was because of their fear. They were afraid we were going to run yeah, 500 more miles and be turned well, away. Like, what was the point? Why would I go ahead and do the rest of this? And my point to them was, that's fine. You know, I'm going to take a camel and a box of Snickers bars, and I'm continuing. And the reason is I can live with getting to the border of Libya, and if I'm turned away... I go home and I know that I did everything I could do. Every, them letting me in is out of my control. I can live with that. What I couldn't live with was wondering whether or not we would have been let in for the rest of my life. Yeah. And of course, now I, get the, I, I got the pleasure of saying, see, I told you so. <laughs> I tried not to say it, not too loudly. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and that, that, that made so a big difference. All, where are we? Oh, that's right. We're in Libya. Yeah. That's right, guys. Uh, where are we again? There's Momar. Oh, right. Um, but running the Sahara sort of put me on the map. But a lot of people, if, if you had a PE coach that yelled at you or like if you didn't handle authority well, you probably didn't like me in the film, at least the way I was depicted. So flash forward a couple of years, you know, I've been on Jay Leno and NPR and all the morning shows and I got a book deal and I got this and I got that after running the Sahara and I'm giving speaking gigs all over the place and life is good. And it made me, so running this era put me on the map, but it also made me a target. And so it's 2010, and I actually get targeted by a small town IRS agent who decides he wants to know how a runner can afford to take the time to go run across the Sahara. So he, audit, you know, doesn't even audit me. He investigates me without my knowledge and like 20 years of tax returns and comes up empty. Like I, I have the memo still that says, you know, I found no evidence of any wrongdoing. 
but he wasn't willing to let it go. This was 2010, and I had a- Why is there such a, a mystery? I mean, you, could you just tell him like, yeah, this is, this is where the money came from? What you- yeah, right, well, all my money was all my tax returns, yeah. and it's not like I was making a million dollars a year, shit, it wasn't that hard to figure out where yeah. $75,000 was coming yeah. from. And also there was and, a movie thing Right, here, Matt Damon, like, you heard of that guy? Yeah, he, you has, know, he, he has a little bit of money. He paid for it. Yeah. And, and anyway, I ultimately end up coming home from running errands one day, and I get, I see out of the corner of my eye, six armed federal agents come out of a coffee shop and they handcuff and shackle me and take me to jail. And I honestly have no, like I am at a loss, stunned. I don't know what's going on. And it's not until the next day that I find out that I am actually being charged with supposedly overstating my income on a home loan application from 2005. Okay. A ninja loan, uh, uh, basically a no income, no, like this is a stated income loan, the kind that everybody had, you know, it was a, it was a, I had a good credit score, but was overextended at the time. And, you know, you could get a loan. This was an investment property, you know, whatever. So I got a loan. When the bottom dropped out, you know, that property ended up going back to the bank. So I had a foreclosure. I lost, I lost a hundred thousand dollars of down payment. I lost my good credit. I, you know, the losses that I already had far exceeded. <laughs> did you, know. you did you overstate your income? No, I actually didn't. Did I mean, I, I had a broker. Uh, who, how does that work? You go. What, what are you talking about? Here, here's the here's the loan application. So here's the here's the crazy thing. At trial, I ended up going. I took this to trial, which yeah. nobody does against the feds because yeah. you're gonna yeah, lose. Yeah, because you're fucked. I mean, right. Ninety seven percent. You know, take a deal because you're gonna lose. Yeah. So I went to trial. At trial, I proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the mortgage broker actually forged my name on. I mean, the government's own handwriting experts, you know, proved that it wasn't my signature. I ultimately was convicted of mail fraud. I was found not guilty of providing false information, but guilty of mail fraud because I signed a closing package. I signed, you know, where the red sticky notes are. Then there was false information enclosed that I didn't know was there. I didn't, whatever. And I, of course, put it in the mail and I send it back. So anyway, the the part of what I'm getting at is fair or unfair, whatever. The predisposition of some people who saw running the Sahara, I get arrested and like overnight, it's it's <laughs> yeah. all over the oh, country. That yeah, that, I told you that guy was an asshole. Yeah, yeah. So I had to like deal with this this hatred yeah. uh, from a certain group of people. You know, even some people who you know liked me or purported to like me, and and it was painful. You know, it it hurt. And and the crazy thing is. All right, so this whole process takes place. I, I have to like, I'm off the board of nonprofits that I started. I lose, you know, hundred thousand dollars in speaking gigs overnight. I'm, I have no more sponsors. Yeah, you're like, like you're unpersoned yeah, at this point. I'm, I'm basically purged from my own you. life. Like I've, I'm just purged. I'm, I'm shat out the other end. So I go to trial. I'm found guilty. I'm sentenced to 21 months in federal prison. And I'm, that's coming up. Like, I have to do it. This is 2011. So on, I report to prison on, on Valentine's Day, 2011. And I'm angry. You know, I'm, I'm bitter. I put on a happy face for the people around me because no, who, it's like once I got sentenced, I actually had 90 days before I had to report to prison. It's like. Trump's like the worst. Probably. It's the word yeah. limbo in the greatest sense. Like, what do you do? Fuck it. We'll just go now, whatever. Right. Yeah. What do you do when you can't, you can't have a life? I mean, people treat you like you've got a terminal illness and like they don't know what to say. So I spent all my time actually making other people feel better instead of they didn't know what to say to me. You know, I go to prison and 
I figure out very quickly, though, that, you know, I'm 19 years sober. I've been through a lot. I know how to get through hard times. And I've run all over the world. and Anti-fragile. Right. And I've put myself, right. So this is my opportunity, right? I mean, in a weird way, I recognize very quickly that I have a choice. I can either let this be like this incredibly bitter pill that I suck on for a year and a half, or I can figure out a way to make the best of the situation. And, and I have that conversation with myself. I'm like, fair or unfair, who I'm going to be in here is up to me. Yeah. And my happiness is up to me. I'm and sure you've read meditations. Of course. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I started There's running. a chance to practice it about. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I even read, um, oh my God. So uh, Jack London, one of the first books I read when I was in there, interesting, was an old Jack London book called The Rover. And The Rover is this amazing sort of true story. It's fantasized in a bit, but this sort of true story about him and being in an asylum and, and wearing a straitjacket. And in, in short version is he teaches himself how to transport himself into adventures. And so he's in this straitjacket sometimes, you know, the warden wants him to suffer. And so it's first, it's a few hours, then it's a day, then it's a week, then it's weeks at a time, you know, and, and the book goes off into these, these fantasies, like he's living these adventures, like he's going off and, and he comes back and he's actually satisfied and not unhappy and it pisses the warden off, of course. Yeah, and, the best revenge. Right. And so I, I take these lessons and I sort of say, okay, who do I want to be in here? And so I do what comes natural. I start to run. I run every day and when we're in lockdown and I'm stuck in the cell, I run in the cell in place every day, sometimes for hours at a time. Wow. And people thought I was nuts, which is in prison actually not all yeah. that bad a thing. You know? <laughs> this I'm guy the middle, sits and runs right, in I'm the middle-aged <laughs> white guy. Like, don't mess with that guy. Yeah. Something's really wrong with him. Serial killer for sure. Yeah. So, and I start doing <laughs> yoga three days a week, like out on the softball field, which I don't recommend for people who are going to prison. You know, the strange thing is, by the time I leave there, 18 months later, it's 21-month sentence, but, you know, you get a 15% volume discount, I always say. So at 18 months, I'm leaving. I've got a running group of 50 guys. I got 25 guys doing yoga with me a few days a week. I'm teaching the federal system has no addiction recovery. It's, it's crazy. 85% of the people are in there for some drug-related thing, and there's no addiction. Re there's no AA. There's no NA. There's none of that. Like you could kind of do it on your own if you have some knowledge, but I taught classes and I taught nutrition. Anyway, so I had all these guys who were like, you know, I had guys who lost a hundred pounds or more. I had all these wonderful stories and, and <laughs> a bunch of friends. They were sad to see you yeah, leave. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, I, and in a way I was sad to leave, but what's crazy is they thanked me so profusely and these people, like I changed their life and all this and, and they, they thought I did that for them. And what they didn't understand was I didn't do it for them. I did it for, I, it was a purely selfish and selfless act at the same time. Yeah, like I'm going to do this if you guys want to join in. To keep it, you have to give it away, yeah. you know? And, and so for me, the act of helping other people and getting out of myself and sort of feeling that satisfaction of seeing someone else transform and, and knowing that hopefully they're going to leave and take running with them or take a little bit of knowledge about addiction recovery or nutrition or even yoga and go home and do something with it. And 
prison is weird because it's not like college. You know, you're actually not allowed to have contact with people, at least not in the short term, you know, because you're a felon. <laughs> so you can't go out there. It's not like you can keep in touch because technically it's a violation of, you know, probation or whatever. And, you know, so I got through it. And, and you know what? Just like anti-fragile, you just said it. I, I actually left prison a far better person than when I got there. Would I have ever in a million years have chosen it for myself? Of course not. You know, it cost me everything I had, which is an interesting way to put it. It cost me everything I had. So when, even when I got out, despite all the lessons I learned, for the short term, I started trying to recoup everything yeah. I had. You're still, in other eyes, you're still a felon that just got out of jail. Yeah. Whether right, wrong, yeah. And so I'm trying to get all this back. And I finally am like going, why the hell am I trying to get that back? I'm actually a different person now. Go, go do new things. Go figure it out from this point forward. And what is that? What's, what are the new things now? Yeah, and so the new things are actually, um, wow, I learned so much compassion for myself. You said it a little while ago, and it's the first time you and I have ever met. But I can tell you're an intense person. And, you're, and you are, I'm sure, very hard on yourself. So you probably have great compassion for the world, for the people around you, but you probably have very little for yourself. Or I'm, I'm being wildly like judgmental when I say that. That may not be true at all. But I think I'm strange in that regard that that's not how I am, but oh, I, to- I, okay. I do get what you're saying. I could though. see you being very hard on yourself. Yeah, for kinda, some reason. You kind of said that, but yeah, yeah, you no, don't I, dwell in it. Some I, people sit in that. Yeah. And they, they, they like to, again, like almost... For me, I think it comes to actually something you said. So yes, I have very high standards for myself. And I would say that on the whole, I, I have done a, done a good job living up to them and meeting them. And I don't mind, you know, there's the cliched stuff about failures or failure. The real failure is if you just quit and walk no, no. away, right? So you make mistakes and you learn. And I don't mind if things don't go the way that I wanted them to go, as long as I know that I worked really hard at it. And I really gave yeah. it my best. Yeah. And, 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 and in many cases, the things that were, I have done that and they have not gone the way that I wanted or weren't as successful as I had hoped. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've always been able to look at that as a, okay, what can I learn from this? Now, looking back, so now I know that like I thought that my estimation of the amount of time and effort it was going to take to produce this result, whatever it is, I was wrong. So I can look back and walk away with, I can learn from that and be like, well, that's what it would have taken. Okay. I should keep that in mind. And, and, you know, I've, I have a few businesses and have gone, that have gone through evolutions and I've now kind of learned a lesson of taking whatever I think on the more extreme end, like estimating effort time or whatever, or, or pain that it's, it's going to have to go through to, and then, and then going, okay, let's go, let's go, let's be a bit extreme on this and then let's double it from there. And then let's see how I feel about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, yeah. so for, for some reason, I, and I don't, I don't, I don't come back and go, you know, on myself and I'm not a very self-critical person. I think writing has something to do with it Maybe. too, because you, Maybe. you, you understand, I mean, when you, if you took away writing from you, like if you couldn't write, yeah. then where would your, you know, you, you, chances are good you'd find another outlet, but my assumption is probably too, a lot of the angst or difficulties that you may have, you know, they come out the end of your pen or figurative pen, you know, you're probably on a computer, but, um, you know, they, they, right. They come out on, that was another interesting thing in prison. I wrote every day and the the other gift that it gave me was I read 150 books. I ran every day. Life was actually pretty easy once I just sort of embraced it. 
and I wrote every day. And like a muscle, I actually, you know, two hours a day of even just journaling. And I, and, and like you were saying a little while ago, like I got a couple thousand letters while I was there and I answered every single one of them it was one of my commitments, even if it was a short answer. But to sit down in this day and age and handwrite letters and to handwrite a journal was so empowering. It was, it was magic in a way. Yeah. Like it really, you know, it really helped me. And I, before I lose this thought, you made me think a second ago of in addiction recovery, there's a great saying. It's one of the first ones I ever learned. And, and AA and NA have like amazing, but very, you know, there's a million cliches that come out of the programs, you know, but one of them is, you know, that serenity, because we talk a lot about serenity. Serenity is, you know, is the ability to be content with unresolved problems because essentially isn't, I mean, our daily existence, my daily existence for sure is filled with unresolved problems. That's life. I always say you're always gonna have problems. I think uh, uh, hopefully we can, we can have the problems that we have meaning. At least there's, you know what yeah. I mean? Hopefully we're not just dealing with bullshit problems. But if you're going to be unhappy because the body shop messed up the fender on your car that they were supposed to be fixing, like if that's going to ruin your friggin' week, yeah. you need to, you need some therapy. Yeah. You need to start writing. You need some real problems. Right. Yeah. You need some real problems. Those are, those are, those are, those are first world problems. Yeah. You know, go, go visit someplace that's got real problems and, yeah. and then tell me what yours are. Well, that was another thing about prison. I get to prison, I got 21 months. First of all, the first guy who showed me around, this little like five foot tall black guy named uh, Pick and Roll was his name too. And I don't even remember what his name was, but that was what everybody called him, Pick and Roll. And I, he's like, he's like, Engel? He's like, how long you got here? How long you gonna be here with us? I said, 21 months. He's like, shit, you ain't even got time to unpack your bags. <laughs> you know, and he'd been there for 20 years, wow. you know? And, and here's the other part. African-American, he was there for an amount of drugs that I had in my possession a hundred times, you know, but I was a middle-class, clean-cut white guy in the hood driving, you know, a decent car and, and nobody messed with me, you know, and so I got a perspective of what life was like to be somebody else. So what, I'm going to complain about 21, was it unfair? Absolutely. You know, I mean, the worst part about it is I couldn't figure out what kind of prison tattoo to get. Like, you know, you I thought one? about like a fountain pen. Or Did you get something? something like, no, I didn't. Okay. You get, hepat you get hepatitis. You get hepatitis, unfortunately, is what you get if you do that in there. But, but that, was, that was the joke, you know, was that, uh, you know, what am I going to get? You know, I want to tell people. I'm embarrassed to tell people. What are you here for? Yeah, no shit. Uh, you know, overstating my income on a home loan. <laughs> but I didn't, even, I didn't even do it. Actually, right, it's like, so. what? I'm like, I didn't yeah. want to admit that. Well, you see, there's this investment property <laughs> that I was looking at. <laughs> I've been there with these guys who looked at me like, what are you talking about? You know, but anyway, it's, it's, um, I did learn also, and this is my, my, I won't make it a long stump speech, but you know, the prison, the prison industrial complex, as we call it in this country, is an incredible waste of time and yeah. broken. And, you know, prison was meant for people that society was afraid of, you know, not people they were, they were just mad at. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's an equal opportunity thing between both sides of the political aisle. You know, you've got tough on crime people like Reagan. You've got Clinton who actually put it on steroids. You yeah. know, Clinton kind of said, okay, if you're going to, 
if you want to do this, let's make a business out of it and make money. And so, you know, incarceration rates went up 600% while he was in office. And consequently, you know, there's just, it, it's a business, you know, more than it is anything. And if taxpayers... Well, the privately owned, right? Pardon? A lot of them or all of them? I'm, I'm ignorant about the uh, prison system, but a lot of them or all of them are privately owned, right? Or, or not a vast majority are okay. privately owned these days. Yeah. And, and, they, and, and it's government money, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's like... It's ta- it's, no, it's X, our money. It's your money. True. I mean, that's that's the issue that's that I tell people all true. the time. Yeah. A dollar that, you know, you can be tough on crime. Why? Because some crackhead... You know, broke into your car and stole the stereo. Okay, you're mad at him. Well, he's going to go to prison for 20 years, or he can go to treatment. And okay, maybe he doesn't get it. Maybe maybe it takes a couple of times, or maybe yeah. he commits a worse crime. Yeah, that is there is a chance of that, and there reaches a point where the guy does belong in prison or girl. But from a taxpayer point of view, you you know, for every dollar we spend on either prevention or treatment, you save ten dollars in taxpayer money. Like that is an absolute. I'm not just making that that number up. Like that is a, a verified number. Yeah. The problem is you got lobbyists, you got you got people who are paying politicians. You know, because in this country we make sure that we. I always make the joke that at least in South America and a lot of other countries, they're, they're, um, they have enough decency to pay their bribes under the table. You know, we just allow our politicians to take money above the table. Yeah. You know, we pay them millions of dollars and allow companies and lobbyists to pay them money directly and pretend like it's for nothing when, in fact, it's for their vote. It's for their if you're the prison lobby, who are you going to pay? You're going to take people that are going to make sure that the prison uh, unions stay strong and that prisons stay full. And that takes a concerted societal effort. And it's the easiest mark because you know who society doesn't care about? Inmates, <laughs> period. Sure. Unless you have one in there that's, sure. a, that's a family member or something. like. So anyway, that's my rant on that. It's just a uh, people, especially in upcoming elections, should pay more attention to tax dollars that are spent on you know, infrastructure and on things that we actually need and treatment programs that actually, who do you want to have live next to you? Do you want to have a person who came out of treatment and got some help and whatever? Or do you want to have a guy who just did 15 years and he gets out all pissed off and mad at the world, mad at the world? Yeah. Does that who you want as your neighbor or living down the street from you? Or do you want the guy who's like, okay, you know what? I I got a chance. I, I, I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to be better. So there you go. That's I do it. agree. I do agree. So so what's next for you? So you have yeah. So five point eight is 5. the big 8, thing. Yep. And then you also mentioned uh, yeah that, Spartan yeah. Spartan Trail, which so, is in which is in Virginia, right? Yeah. So, so the first in, so in my neck of I am and we, I got permission from Joe to say and I actually because I wanted to make sure I wasn't like divulging some huge secret to at least tease a little bit a new product from Spartan, which is Spartan Trail. And it is what it sounds like. It's going to be a series, a nationwide series of trail runs and races associated with current Spartan obstacle course races. So, for example, the first one's in your current home state and uh, the middle of Virginia in Arrington, Virginia, where on October 13th, there's already a Spartan Super uh, and Sprint on that weekend. And so I just last week even designed a course, a 10K course and a half marathon course. They will be in, they'll go different directions from the regular Spartan regular race. That's all going to kick off from. Yeah, but they'll start, you know, the, the, the people doing the, the trail run will get a taste of the Spartan 
you know, vibe. So they'll get uh, the MC there to take them through the chants and they'll take off. And when they finish, they'll jump over the fire and, you know, go across the same finish line. And, and you know, the, the hope is twofold for me. Uh, and Joe and I have been talking about this for a while, but uh, there's also another guy, Luis Escobar, a very well-known runner who's here. He'll be handling most of the West Coast and I'm doing the East. And the, the hope is that we entice new people into the, you know, into the Spartan fold that um, are like, I don't want to jump over obstacles. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. But, I'm, but I would come do a trail run. Yeah. And then maybe when they see the, the energy and get a sense of it, maybe they do jump in. Uh, but also for a lot of, you know, generally speaking, Spartan athletes have somebody in their life that supports that yeah. lifestyle. And so maybe it's the husband, the wife, you never know which way it's going, or boyfriend, girlfriend, but whoever the obstacle course athlete is, is probably bringing somebody. And that person may not want to do an obstacle race, but they'll get out there and do a 10K. So it gives both people something to do over the weekend where they leave with a medal and a t-shirt and some memories. And, And I will say it will be a Spartan trail run, though. (laughs) <laughs> Which means it's not going to be... Uh, no. If there's mud, you're going through it. <laughs> if there's, you know, Virginia, North Carolina is, is rocks and roots. That's yeah. the nature of our trails there. So, you know, I'm going to make it challenging but doable and and uh, give people a little taste of what the Spartan sort of lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. yeah, you want to feel like when you're done with a trail race or with an obstacle course race, you want to feel like you've earned it. And, you know, you want... My goal is halfway through either of the races, you're thinking to yourself, why did I think this was a good idea? Yeah, because then you know the payoff is yeah. that. So you got you to get to that point. Yeah. If you don't, don't suffer if you, a little bit. If you don't want to quit, then I've done something wrong, you yeah. know? But then I want you to get to the end. You know, we want, as we've said so much here today, share the struggle. And people can find more, you know, that's, that's a little hard to find on the Spartan because it's, uh, a, it's a new thing. Yeah. But, but any, anybody who's ever clicked on a Spartan tab understands that you will be bombarded with advertisements for the rest of your life anyway. So trust me, we'll find you. (laughs) You'll see Spartan Trail. And, you know, for anybody that wants to find ways to buy my book, um, Running Man, or or be in contact with me about sobriety or about running or anything, one-stop shopping, charlieingle.com. And that will direct you to all my social media, E-N-G-L-E. Oh, E-N-G-L-E. Yeah, yep. So com. Instagram is the place that I'm most active these days on social media. So everything else gets posted to Facebook and Twitter. But I kind of just, I don't have the energy to do more than one thing. So um, I'm pretty uh, negligent in my... Yeah. I like in my photos. social media activities because I, like I just I'm not personally into the, it at all and the, the not a good excuse because yeah. I, I should actually be making better use of it. I'm hiring yeah. somebody. I want to actually the thing is I want to get somebody because to do it right takes a bit of work actually in terms 100%. of planning it out and really doing a good job. It's about consistency yes. because what I found as a as a consumer of social media, if there's somebody I really like, whatever, pick somebody big. Like I follow Gary Vee, you know, and he's like, you know, he's the man. He's got gazillion followers. One of the things that he does that's so good is he's consistent. Like every single day, I know I can count on something from I don't want to watch it or listen to it every day, yeah. but I know, but it's, know there it's there every day. Like, I right. I want a little boost. I want him to curse at me a little yeah, bit yeah. and tell me to get off my ass and go do something, yeah. right? <laughs> and I don't even have to pay for it. Yeah. So... Um, but that's the way to find me, and I, you know, I welcome 
you know, I welcome questions or just inquiries or, you know, about all these subjects. And hopefully with Dead Sea to Everest 5.8, there will be a production deal. So you, you, it will be available in a variety of different formats for That's people cool. to kind of follow along. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks Appreciate for having it. me. Hey there, it is Mike again. I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it interesting and helpful. And if you did and don't mind doing me a favor and want to help me make this the most popular health and fitness podcast on the internet, then please leave a quick review of it on iTunes or wherever you're listening from. This not only convinces people that they should check the show out, it also increases its search visibility and thus helps more people find their way to me and learn how to build their best bodies ever too. And of course, if you want to be notified when the next episode goes live, then just subscribe to the podcast and you won't miss out on any of the new goodies. Lastly, if you didn't like something about the show, then definitely shoot me an email at mike at muscleforlife.com and share your thoughts on how you think it could be better. I read everything myself and I'm always looking for constructive feedback, so please do reach out. All right, that's it. Thanks again for listening to this episode and I hope to hear from you soon. And lastly, this episode is brought to you by me. (laughs) Seriously though, I'm not big on promoting stuff that I don't personally use and believe in, so instead I'm going to just quickly tell you about something of mine. Specifically, my 100% natural fat loss supplement, Phoenix. It has sold over 100,000 bottles in the last several years, and it helps you lose fat faster in three ways. One, it increases your metabolic rate, Two, it amplifies the power of fat-burning chemicals produced by your body. And three, it increases the feeling of fullness from food. In short, it speeds up your metabolism, it helps your body burn fat more efficiently, and it helps you control hunger and cravings and maintain high energy levels. Phoenix also contains no artificial food dyes, fillers, or other unnecessary junk. And all that is why it has over 700 reviews on Amazon with a four-star average and another 250 reviews on my website with a four-and-a-half-star average. So if you want to burn more fat every day and have an easier time sticking to your diet without having to pump yourself full of harsh stimulants or potentially harmful chemicals, then you want to head over to www.legionathletics.com and pick up a bottle of Phoenix today. And just to show how much I appreciate my podcast peeps, use the coupon code podcast at checkout and you will save 10% on your entire order. And lastly, you should also know that I have a very simple 100% money back guarantee that works like this. You either love my stuff or you get your money back, period. You don't have to return the products. You don't have to fill out forms. You don't have to jump through any other hoops or go through any other shenanigans. So you really can't lose here. Head over to www.legionathletics.com now, place your order, and see for yourself why my supplements have thousands of rave reviews all over the internet. And if for whatever reason, they're just not for you, contact us and we will give you a full refund on the spot.